0: Turn to Jonah chapter 1 in your Bibles and we're going to continue on in our series that we started a few weeks ago and today I'm going to take on a something I don't normally do. I usually preach through one or two verses at a chunk, but we're going to take on the whole rest of the chapter this morning and I promise I won't have you here until 3 or 4 o'clock. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the glory of your grace. Thank you for your sovereign hand in all of our lives, and whether we're going through a time of turmoil or a time of triumph, we know that you are behind it all, and uh, you're always, always pursuing us to get us to be right where you want us to be, close to you in the name of Jesus. And so open our eyes now and help us, Lord God, to understand what you are speaking to us through your word this morning, your God-breathed, inspired word, and may we apply it as you see fit through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Charles Spurgeon once said that Christians can never sin cheaply. They pay a heavy price for iniquity. Transgression destroys peace of mind. It obscures fellowship with Jesus. It hinders prayers. It brings darkness over the soul. Jonah... As we've seen, and we're going to see, is proof of that statement. The great London preacher Spurgeon also said that God never permits his people to sin successfully. In other words, no true child of God is going to ultimately get away with rebellion. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. And he chastens every son whom he receives. Psalm 89, verses 30 to 33 say this, If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I'll punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But here's the beauty of this psalm. But I will not remove him from my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. It's a great promise. Bottom line, when we forsake God... He who is infinite in his mercy does not forsake us. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love, as the song says. This is the undeniable hopeful message of the book of Jonah, which ultimately leads us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in light of the scriptures I just quoted to you, let me also bring a cautious word of reminder to you. Just because someone is suffering or experiencing a storm in their life, we cannot conclude that that person is the subject of God's hand of discipline. You hear what I'm saying? All storms are not judgments from God sent as a result of disobedience. Sometimes, it's just because we live in a fallen world. Sometimes obeying God to the letter can put you in the middle of a storm. Anybody say amen to that? Amen. That's what happened to the disciples. If you hold your finger in Jonah chapter 1 and turn to Mark chapter 4 for a moment. Mark chapter 4. And of beginning in verse 35. Familiar passage for those of you that have read the Gospel of Mark. On that day when evening came, Jesus said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in a boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. He was no Jonah, by the way. And they woke him and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, quiet, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they became very much afraid. And wouldn't you? Said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the waves of the sea obey him? This whole scene right there in Mark chapter 4, this whole scene here was to show that because Jesus was sovereign over the storm and the sea, that he was therefore God. And as such, he was also sovereign over the disciples' lives as well, and that convicted them. Someone once said that the same God who stills the storm in a life of his submissive ones creates a storm in the life of, his, of the rebellious ones. And that is exactly what we see here in the book of Jonah, and as we'll see in the rest of this chapter 1. The whole chapter, as we'll see, is a study in sharp, contrasts between the sailors actions and Jonah's actions but underlying every section is the most stark contrast of them all God's sovereignty versus man's stupidity I couldn't figure out a better way to say it than that I could I use the word futility uh, whatever no stupidity really hits the mark And what clearly emerges here is the fact that God is in control throughout the entire narrative. You're going to see that in a minute. Listen, friends, God's sovereignty certainly does not relieve us of our responsibility. But the truth of the matter is, is that our human rebellion does not, underline that, does not undermine God's sovereign intention. We can run... Cannot hide. And that is not fatalism. Rather, it is the glory of God's outrageous grace and mercy. God is a relentless pursuer of his prodigal children. Relentless. One pastor pointed out that it's interesting that we never call it, when we're in rebellion, we never call it running from God. Do we? We run from church. We run from parents, we run from job, Well, we don't say we run from God. But that's exactly what it is, isn't it, sometimes? And he uses his own methods to bring us around to his will. In essence, he puts us in a place where we're faced with nowhere else to go. God may bring a storm in our lives to move us, to move us where he wants us to be. He may use the godless unbelievers to convict us. As Jesus spoke to Saul the persecutor before he became Paul the preacher, Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? Look at verse 4 of Jonah 1. I'm going to work down through this passage. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea so that the ship was about to break up. Now, here's God's grace in action. It doesn't look like it, does it? How is that, you're probably asking. Well, an old preacher once described his own conversion by saying that God saved him by butting into his life of sin. And that's what God was doing here with Jonah. Some of your versions, verse 4 begins with, and the Lord, or then the Lord. But I'll tell you, doing a comparison of a lot of different translations, the majority of translations, the message, New King James, the King James, the New English translations, the New Living Translation, and the English Standard Version all start out with verse 4 saying, but the Lord. God's butting in here. Notice the pattern so far. Verse 1, God called Jonah. Verse 3, but Jonah. Then verse 4, but God. God, Jonah, God. And then we're going to see later on in verse 5, there's another, but Jonah. If this were a movie, I would entitle it, Jonah Interrupted. Because God was interrupting Jonah right here in verse 4. And the Lord, or but the Lord hurled a great wind. In other words, God threw this storm at Jonah. It's a very strong word in the Hebrew language. It's the same word used when Saul threw a spear to try to kill David across the room. It's the same word used later on here when it talks about the sailors jettisoning their their cargo over the side. They were throwing it. And then later on when they threw Jonah into the sea... Get the picture. Picture God throwing a fastball of wind right at that ship. It says God hurled a great wind which resulted in a great storm. Great, by the way, that word great is another often repeated word in Jonah. Actually, it's used 14 times. If you go through the book of Jonah, you can circle them all. It means large in intensity and in immensity and magnitude and extent. In other words, this was no simple sea breeze here in verse 4. Look at the reaction of the sailors in verse 5. Then the sailors became afraid and every man cried to his God and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. This is a serious, serious storm, my friends. I mean, these were professional mariners. Likely Phoenicians who were experienced old salts and knew, they were known for their seafaring skills. They knew these waters and they understood the dangers of the sea and they were unfamiliar with this kind of turbulent activity. You know why I say that? Because in verse 5 it says that it scared them to death. They, I'm sure they'd seen some storms on the sea before, but nothing like this one because the ship was breaking into pieces, it says, and they were panicking. And here's a very important principle to understand about running from God. It affects a whole host of people around you. Doesn't say anything about Jonah being afraid. You know, when you run from God, you think it's all about you. But other people experience the fallout of a prodigal's rebellion. Always. Everyone on board here is endangered by Jonah's sin. As Ray Pritchard reminds us, we never sin alone. We never sin alone. We may be alone when we sin, but we never sin alone. Our sin, our compromise, our deceit always injures somebody else. It injures our spouse, our children, our friends, our family, the people all around us. You don't sin alone. Notice the effect that it has on these sailors. And this is where we see the first major contrast here. Note the sailors' prayerful conduct versus Jonah's careless complacency in verses 5 and 6. So, the sailors became afraid. Every man cried to his God. They threw the cargo over, which was in the ship, to lighten it for them. But Jonah, there it is again, but Jonah, he had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down and fallen sound asleep. Not just asleep, mind you. Sound asleep. And so the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Here's the contrast, which is very, very poignant. The pagans pray while the prophet sleeps. People who do not know God are desperately calling unto gods who cannot save them while the one man who knows the true God, the sovereign Lord, is sound asleep. That's a little convicting, isn't it? The pagans pray in verse 5. Here's an interesting scene. Everything's chaos on deck. The only prayers that are happening are the prayers to deities that have no power. They have no clout. That's true in our society, isn't it? The world is in crisis mode. And people out there are rubbing their rabbit foots, feet, praying to God, who knows what God. And the ship is going down because when things get rough, the scared start praying. No atheists in foxholes, right? They were praying up a storm, but the storm had already hit them. They needed to pray it out, but their gods weren't powerful enough to get rid of it. And it was getting worse by the minute. In fact, it was so bad that they were throwing their cargo overboard to lighten the weight, it says. They were actually putting their jobs at risk. They were putting their livelihood at risk. What would they tell their suppliers once they got back, if they got back, and all the cargo was gone? God hurled the wind, and the sailors hurled the same thing, their cargo. And probably somebody was hurling their lunch at this point. Rough seas. Ever been on some rough seas? Tragedy is that the real weight that was sinking the ship wasn't the cargo. The real weight was sleeping in the hold. The prodigal's rebellion was sucking everyone down with him. They were drowning in the sea of Jonah's apathy. Mark that. And that's a hard rebuke of the contemporary church at times, isn't it? The godless cry for help in their own misguided ways while the godly crawl into a hole and sleep. Has apathy overtaken us? So the pagans pray and Jonah sleeps. It says, Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fell into a deep Sleep. And Jonah's not just sleeping, as I said, he's fallen into a deep sleep. The word is probably closer to describing anesthesia. It sounds funny, but in Hebrew, that's really what they're talking about. Basically, Jonah's comatose. How is it that Jonah's sleeping so soundly? Speculation on this abounds with commentators. I've read just an inexhaustible list. Here's a few. He was exhausted from running. His heart was hardened, so his conscience wasn't bothering him. He wanted to sleep away his conviction, so he curled up into a fetal position and just tried to forget about everything... Or Satan actually lulled him to sleep, into the sleep of complacency while the world around him was crashing and God was trying to get his attention. This is exactly what Jesus warned against in Mark 13 and in Matthew 25 with the parable of the virgins that didn't go and get enough oil. And when the bridegroom was away, they got drowsy and fell asleep. And Jesus says, hey, don't don't sleep. Stay on the alert because you don't know the day or the hour, right? I think Alistair Begg put it best. He said, disobedience is draining in the end. It's only invigorating for a short moment. Disobedience to God is draining to your soul. It's unnerving how many people in rebellion often sleep so well. And I wonder if it's because it's the only way for them to get some relief And forget their rebellion, because when they're awake, a lot of energy is being expended in running away from God. Is that right? Someone has aptly described the devastating picture this way. The parents of a prodigal lie awake at night weeping and praying as the child sleeps soundly, oblivious to the hearts that are breaking in the next bedroom. A wife lies in bed in anguish over a marriage that's tearing apart at the seams and listens to the deep breathing of her soundly sleeping rebel husband, oblivious to the pain and the devastation that he's bringing to all the people in that household. And he lists example after example. You see, sin eventually makes us oblivious to God's actions around us, as well as making us blind to the world's needs. Jonah was in a deep sleep quite literally Jonah was dead to the world that is until the captain showed up and the irony is arresting when you read it the godless ship captain is calling the man of god to prayer so the captain approaches him and says how is it that you're sleeping Get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so we won't perish. It took a pagan to awaken a prophet. Isn't that a role reversal? God uses a pagan to call a prophet to prayer when it should have been the prophet who was calling the pagans to prayer. Verse 6 is convicting as are many others in this book. captain shows more faith than Jonah does. And it's interesting that he rouses Jonah with the identical words, identical words that God used to call him in verse 2. Look at the commands that the captain gives him. Get up and call out. Isn't that just what God said in verse 2 to Jonah? Arise and go cry against Nineveh. Nineveh. Get up, call out. And here's this captain doing the same thing. Imagine Jonah. He's he's sound asleep. All of a sudden, this captain wakes him up. And in his groggy state, all he hears is these same two commands. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Repeat, repeat. Now it's a pagan captain that's being the mouthpiece of God. That's because Jonah can't hear directly from God now because he's so far off in rebellion, Right? Get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us because no one else's God on this deck is working. He's not listening. Kind of reminds me of that showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. They're doing all this stuff and whipping themselves and cutting themselves and calling on their gods. And Elijah says, oh, maybe he's sleeping. (laughs) He's not hearing you. Now we don't have any information as to whether Jonah actually joined them in prayer. It doesn't say that in the text. If he did, it was likely pretty benign prayer probably. Why do I say that? Because as one writer observes, locked in a conflict with the Lord, Jonah could neither pray nor prophesy. Surrounded by unbelievers who desperately needed to know the Lord, Jonah had nothing to offer them. That's sad. His ministry had been silenced by his secret sin. Man, that's convicting. The unbelieving world cannot pray for itself effectively. Why? Because they don't know the true God if they're unbelievers. Who prays for them? The church can pray for them, intercede for them. But who's going to stand in the gap if the church is sound asleep? Here's a sobering truth to ponder. The world may not want to hear our sermons, but in the midst of a storm, they surely want our prayers. I've almost always found that to be true. I think I can think of one time in my life where I've asked somebody if they wanted me to pray for them, and the atheist said no. Almost always they say, sure, I'd like that. Complete strangers respond positively when asked if you can pray for them. Again, Ray Pritchard tells a story about several years ago with their youth choir. They took a summer mission trip to New York City. When, When he heard about their plans, he was a little bit worried about them. He says, I love New York, great city, exciting place, but it's not for the faint of heart. I wasn't worried about anything bad happening, but I did wonder how the folks in New York would respond to our youngsters from Tupelo who came to town hoping to do some good. And when it came to ministering in Manhattan, the leaders made two decisions that turned out to be very, very wise. First, they decided to sing a lot, which goes over well in New York City, right? Because there's always people on the street singing. But the second thing is they decided to pray for people. And here's what they did. They found various locations in Manhattan where they put up prayer stations. The young people would set up a card table with a poster that said in big letters, prayer station. That's it. That was their whole plan. Nothing else. If people stopped, they simply asked them, how can we pray for you? That's it. Table with a a sign that said prayer station and a simple question. How can we pray for you? How would the folks of New York City respond to something like this? He questioned. Would the kids be laughed right off the street, right out of town as it turned out? He said, people stood in line. People stood in line waiting to be prayed for. One guy pulled up to a red light. He says, I can't get out of the car right now, but would you pray for me? And he gave him something to pray for. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because we're all in the same boat, so to speak, pun intended, right? People are hurting. Families are in crisis. People struggle to make ends meet. And there is a sickness of one sort or another in every family. And everyone is touched by pain and sorrow. It's no different in the big city than it is in the small country, town. The lesson is clear. The world waits for us to pray. The world wants for us to pray. And the world wonders why we don't pray. And they don't understand our doctrine. They aren't interested in our sermons. But they are interested in having us pray for them. And if they get our prayers, my friends, they might one day listen to our sermons. Contrast number two, verses seven through 11, the sailor's confusion versus Jonah's confession. Let's look at this. Each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Let us tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men became extremely frightened. There's that word again, great. Same word. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Yet again, we see God's sovereign hand all over this text, right? Their prayers weren't getting them anywhere to their, their false gods. And Jonah isn't saying or doing anything as a, as a disposed prophet, a deposed prophet. So they cast lots to determine the source of the calamity. Now scholars are all over the map on exactly what it is uh, that was involved with casting lots. usually involved colored stones or pebbles of some sort that were kind of thrown out of a bag or, or picked out of a bag. And it's clear, however, that one thing is sure, that it was used in the Old Testament on numerous occasions to determine the will of God in a decision that was difficult. And um, it actually was used all the way up until Acts chapter 1 and verse 26 in determining who would succeed Judas as an apostle. After that, you never see it again. But of course, in Acts 2, we have Pentecost, which is right around now, and the Holy Spirit coming down to give discernment. But casting lots was used in the Old Testament. And the one thing we do know about casting lots is that God, in His sovereign grace, superintended the results. Proverbs 16.33, we get an inclination from that verse. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. How about that? So these sailors roll the dice. Ding, 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 ding. Jonah wins the lottery. (laughs) Here's another prodigal principle, and it's also a scriptural axiom. Prodigals will always be prone to discovery. Numbers 32, 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. Nathan comes to David, tells him a parable. Then he says, you are the man, David. David. You're the man. And David couldn't escape. Joshua chapter 7, verses 19 to 22. Achan steals something. He tries to hide it in his tent. Joshua figures it out. Why? Because they cast lots and they, they paraded them by. And God said, this is the family. This is the man. And Jonah said, uh, I mean Joshua says to Achan, you've been chosen. Tell us what you did. And here we see it again. You can run. But you can't hide. Sooner or later, you're going to have to tell the truth. So prodigals will always, always be prone to discovery. Here's another principle. Prodigals will always be pressed for disclosure. That's verses 8 and 9. They said to him, tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck. They got all over him with the questions Can you see it there? Verse 8. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? I mean, they're all over him about this stuff. What? Where? Wait? What? Jonah's sin was finally exposed. His silence was broken. Jonah answered the questions. He confessed his liability. He owned his Hebrew nationality. And he exposed his religion. It was a bold confession. He didn't just say, my name is Jonah. He said, he basically affirmed his Christianity when he was pressed, pressed, right? His true religion, so to speak. I am a Hebrew. Now that's, that meant something to those sailors because that was the designation to the rest of the world that these are the people of God. When they heard the name, you're a Hebrew, uh-oh, watch out. This is the God that split the sea. This is the God that delivered them from Egypt. This is the God that performed all the signs and wonders and miracles. We don't mess with this guy. So it was a bold confession on his part. Number two, it was a reverent confession. He said, look at it, in verse um, 8, verse 9. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven... ...who made the sea and the dry land. I fear the Lord God of heaven. He left no room for doubt whom he served. He served the all-powerful, almighty, true God. Psalm 96, for example, says this about that God. Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols... But the Lord made the heavens. See that? So it was a bold confession, a reverent confession, and it was an orthodox confession. I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He let them know that his God was the true God who controlled all the situations. And it was also an incriminating confession. He answered all their questions except for one. Know what it was? What's your occupation? He didn't have an answer for that one. Scottish pastor and scholar Sinclair Ferguson suggests that this is because he was no longer able to say, I am a prophet of the Lord. His witness had been silenced. The very work for which he had been created lay incomplete. He had no word from God to give to them. What happened to Jonah can happen to you, it can happen to me. That's notoriously what happens when a Christian is in rebellion against God. As Warren Wiersbe points out, he lost the voice of God, he lost his spiritual energy or his joy for God, he lost his power in prayer, and he lost his testimony. Even as the words of his creed fell from his mouth, I'm wondering if there was any conviction starting to happen in his heart. Have you ever confessed your Christianity to someone, for example, and in so doing realized your utter sinfulness as the words spilled from your lips? Your own words are convicting you? Have you ever been embarrassed to reveal to somebody that you are a Christian? After that same someone has seen the way you just acted or heard the way you just spoke? Ever had that situation happen to you? It's not fun. I've had it happen to me. But Jonah knows that he was the problem, he knows it. Jonah's confession was inconsistent with his actions. How could he make such a confession that he feared the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land knowing that he was running from that God and serving such an all-powerful creator? How could he do that? It certainly was not lost on the sailors, right? When Jonah confessed that he was running from a God more powerful than any of their puny little gods, little G, the God who created the sea and the dry land, they flipped out. Look at what it says. And the men became extremely frightened. And they said, how could you do this? Psalm 33, verses 6 through 8 says, To God Almighty, the oceans of the world are as much under His control as if He were to gather them up and put them in jars. Psalm 33, verses 6 to 8. Let me read it to you. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. These sailors were now awestruck, beyond awe. They were fearful beyond fear. The text says that they were extremely frightened. Literally, the Hebrew reads like this. They were extremely, greatly frightened. They were terrified. Verse 10. How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, how could you? Why did you? What in the world are you thinking? It's not a question. It's an exclamation. And the world sometimes asks the church those same things, you know, and sometimes we're culpable, aren't we? It's as if the world looks at us in our hypocrisy and says, look, if you're going to claim to be a Christian, be one. And as one man put it, live like one, act like one, talk like one, pray like one. The unbelieving watching world expects that of us. They want real Christians, not Jonah's. And I, I am convicted by that as you are. Verse 11, so they said to him, what should we do to you then that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Notice that this sea was becoming even stormier right it got stormy in verse 4 and then it became more stormy later on and then here it's becoming increasingly stormy Jonah wasn't getting the message and God was putting on the pressure he's turning up the heat or turning up the water so to speak Enter the next big contrast, contrast number three in verses 12 to 14, the sailor's compassion versus Jonah's concession. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Let's just stop there for a minute. These sailors recognized the seriousness here of Jonah's disobedience more than Jonah actually did. So they asked, what should we do to you that it may go well for us? And I think they're beginning to recognize the sovereignty of God in all of this, right? And he wanted to appease him. They were getting the idea that they were caught up in somebody else's storm. What should we do to you for us? I love what James McDonald's reaction to this. He says that right at this point, right at this point, I agree with him. Right at this point, Jonah should have gotten on his knees in the back of the boat and poured out his heart to God in repentance. Aye, aye, Pastor James, I agree with you. Right? Jonah should have been asking for forgiveness here and deliverance for these unbelievers who were on their way to a Christless eternity if they perished in the storm that was intended for Jonah. But God's more gracious than that, isn't he? He wasn't going to kill those sailors on account of Jonah. In fact, we're going to see that in a minute. This storm has a lot of effects, not just for the prophet of God, but for the pagans who didn't know God. Look at verse 12. He said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea, and the sea will become calm. Because I know it's on my account that this storm has come. But Jonah's no martyr here, by the way. Don't mistake that. Martyrs die. Listen, here's, here's the thing. Keep this in mind. Martyrs die for the glory of God. But Jonah would rather die than submit to the will of God. That's what Jonah's saying here. Throw me into the sea because I'd rather die than do what God told me to do. I'm running from it. Jonah's simply complying here. He's conceding here. Jonah's saying, throw me into the sea. Hurl me in there because I'd rather die than do what God wants. That's hardcore rebellion. You ever know somebody in that place? I have. I've known people in that place. And he's a prophet, mind you, that's speaking. Prophet of God. How did he get to this place? That's my question. How does a person get there? Answer? We've been saying it right along, last two messages. The farther you go in rebellion, the harder it is to get back. That can happen to any one of us if we're not careful. I've known people who were so on fire for God that you'd ignite just being next to them. You know those kind of people? They fire you up. And then they got off course, a little bit further, drifted off course, and then they ran so far in the wrong direction that they resembled nothing of once what they once were. I remember talking to a guy like that. Called him up on the phone after two years of running for God from God. He's like, eh, I'll meet with you. I don't care. I know what you're going to tell me. Everybody's tried to tell me. I know I'm in sin. Guess what? I'm not going to change. That's far away. That's far away. Praise the Lord, he did change. Eventually, repented, turned back, and now, as far as I know, he's okay with God, but boy, oh boy, you got to wonder sometimes. How do you get that far away? Somebody that was so, so on fire, now hardened and cold and spiritually empty, and people who love them, go to great lengths to try to get them back. Ask any parent of a prodigal. Verse 13, however, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. This, this storm is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. In their compassion, you've got to give it to them, right? In their compassion to save Jonah, they don't want to kill Jonah, throw him overboard. They're digging in their oars. That's literally what the Hebrew says. They're digging in their oars trying to roll back to land, literally, but they're getting nowhere fast. And I question that, you know, have you ever tried, have you ever had a rowing contest with God? You lose. You lose. Notice the futility of their efforts in verse 13. They could not. The men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not. Underline that a hundred times highlight it and bold it they that's the hinge point right here that is the turning point right here it's the turning point of their story but they could not Deuteronomy 32 verse 39 says this see now that I am he and there is no god besides me it is I who put to death and give life I have wounded and it is I who heal and there is no one who can deliver from my hand They could not. And herein lies another very important principle about prodigals and the ones who love them. Mark this one. Our failure to allow God to deal with a prodigal, in other words, coming to their rescue, only draws us into their storm. Our failure to allow God to deal with a prodigal only draws us into their storm. There comes a time, my friend, my friend, and I'm speaking from experience here, when we must release them to God, let them go, to believe and trust that God's got them. We must allow God to deal with them and allow the consequences of their sin to run its course. Otherwise, you know where we find ourselves? We find ourselves at odds with God's purposes. We're fighting against God. God wants to do a work in somebody's life, and we're trying to come in there and play God. And it just gets worse. Notice it. The storm got stormier. And that's what happened to these sailors with all their compassionate efforts. And we do it in the name of love. And we do it in the name of compassion. We don't want to see people in pain. In their efforts to save this runaway prophet, the sea got even stormier against who? What's it say? Against them. Against them. God has a plan. It's better than yours and mine. Sometimes pain in the prodigal's life is exactly what draws them back to the Father. They come to their senses as God lets them get to that point. Just go read Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, when he's slopping pigs, and all of a sudden it says, and then he came to his senses because no one was giving him anything. That's what it says. It says, the contrast here, however, could not be more pronounced. These pagan Gentile sailors were exhibiting more compassion and concern for the life of one proud rebellious Jonah than Jonah, this self-proclaimed God-fearer, had for a half million Ninevites. They're trying to save one man. He wouldn't even go to save a half million. That God pretty much told him to go. They showed respect for the supremacy of God, these sailors did, and the sanctity of human life. While Jonah had nothing but contempt for both. These pagans had better theology than the prophet did. And the application to our day could not be more poignant. What a slap in the face it is when the unbelieving world shows more compassion for the lonely and the lost than the church of Jesus Christ does. Well, enough of that conviction. Let's move on. Verse 14. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. There's only one prayer recorded in Jonah chapter 1, and it's not Jonah's. It's the pagans, the unbelieving Gentiles, Of all the names of God used in the scriptures, one and only one is considered to be the most sacred name of God. Given to Moses on Mount Sinai, it was never pronounced, never uttered out loud by the Jews in their history. It was used in the Old Testament to designate the self-existent one, the I am who I am, the covenant name of God, which is Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, the unpronounceable name. You have to put vowels in there in order to pronounce it. It's It's interesting to me that this name Yahweh is the name that these pagan sailors used in their prayer. They actually used it three times in their prayer. Look at it. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord. That that word Lord in capital letters, that's what it is. It's the name Yahweh. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. They didn't even know him, and they were praying to him. Something happened. What started in verse 5 as each man praying to his own pagan God ended up in verse 14 with all of them praying to the one true God. That's amazing transformation there. You see that? This entire event in both the sailors and Jonah's experience is drenched with the glory of God's sovereignty. Isn't it? It was God initiated, God originated, God orchestrated, and totally God-centered this story here. Then look at the last contrast here, and this will be quick. Jonah's condemnation versus the sailor's consecration, verses 15 and 16. So they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Notice the sailors, three things about the sailors here. Number one, their cooperation with the word of God. They picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. Now, even though the prophet was in rebellion against God, what he told them to do was exactly what God wanted them to do. And so sometimes people can be a mouthpiece for God even though they don't know it. Right? Number two, the sailors' confirmation of the will of God. The sea stopped its raging. That confirmed that they were right in the center of God's will in this situation. And thirdly, the conviction of the sailors to worship God. In verse 16, then the men feared the Lord greatly. That word Lord again, it's the word Yahweh. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. Same word and they made vows. You read this verse, and you have to weep. Tears of joy. Because the pagan ship becomes a place of worship. The ship to Tarshish becomes a temple of the living God. A floating temple, a holy sacrifice to a living God. Go figure. Boy, did they have a story to tell when they got back. Here's Jonah, doesn't want to go to Nineveh as a missionary, so he runs away, and now we've got this ship going to Tarshish with a hundred little missionaries on board. (laughs) They got stories to tell about the sovereign God wherever they go. Amazing how God works things out, isn't it? They were changed. Don't know if they were truly saved or not, we don't know that, but they worshiped the true God. Jonah was about to be changed. I ran across this profound thought, which certainly has immediate and far reaching application. This is kind of where we're going to put a closure on this and end it. This is worth meditating on, though the voyage into sin may start with a celebration. It always ends with a raging storm. Look at the prodigal son. Parable here, other places, right? David's life. On the flip side, however, and in light of this passage, I want to add my own addendum, which I think is also profoundly scriptural. Though the journey through repentance may start with a raging storm, it repeatedly ends in a joyful celebration of worship. Right? That's a principle. Jesus said in Luke 15, verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons that need no repentance. So, wrap it up. John Ortberg once again summarizes Jonah's story thus far in Dr. Seuss fashion. God says, go. Jonah says, no. God says, blow. Jonah says, so. Captain says, bro. Jonah says, throw. Sailors say, whoa. And they toss Jonah in and they sank, he sank very low. But God had more places for Jonah to go. <laughs> and indeed God did. And we're going to see about that in the next few weeks. Let's uh, close our time in prayer. But I want to use Psalm 107 as our closing prayer. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. And they rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. And then they were glad because they were quiet, so He guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Father, thank you that you have a plan. Help us to submit ourselves to you. Keep us, Lord God, with our eyes fixed on you. Whatever the situation may be in our lives, help us to grab on to the fact and to the truth that you are a relentless pursuer of your prodigal children and that your grace abounds and your mercy is there you will accomplish what you set out to accomplish in our lives to bring us closer to Christ. I pray that for anyone in this place today that's struggling in rebellion, struggling with someone next to them who's in rebellion, that, Lord, that we would just trust you, pray like we've never prayed before, and watch your mighty hand accomplish what no man could ever dream,